CD4 Oh, said Rincewind. Um, hello. Are you alive? she said. It was the kind of voice associated with beach umbrellas, suntan oil, and long, cool drinks. Well, I hope so, said Rincewind, wondering if his glands were having a good time wherever they were. Sometimes I'm not so sure. What is this place? This is the house of death, she said. Ah, said Rincewind. He ran a tongue over his dry lips. Well, nice to meet you. I think I ought to be getting along. She clapped her hands. Oh, you mustn't go, she said. We don't often have living people here. Dead people are so boring, don't you think? Um, yes, Rincewind agreed fervently, eyeing the doorway. Not much conversation, I imagine. It's always when I was alive and we really knew how to breathe in my day, she said, laying a small white hand on his arm and smiling at him. They're always so set in their ways, too. No fun at all. So formal. Stiff, suggested Rincewind. She was propelling him towards an archway. Absolutely. What's your name? My name is Isabel. Um, Rincewind. Excuse me, but if this is the house of death, what are you doing here? You don't look dead to me. Oh, I live here. She looked intently at him. "'I say, you haven't come to rescue your lost love, have you? "'That always annoys Daddy. "'He says it's a good job he never sleeps, "'because if he did, he'd be kept awake by the tramp, tramp, tramp "'of young heroes coming down here to carry back a lot of silly girls,' he says. "'Goes on a lot, does it?' said Rincewind weakly, "'as they walked along a black-hung corridor. "'All the time. I think it's very romantic. "'Only when you leave, it's very important not to look back.' Why not? She shrugged. I don't know. Perhaps the view isn't very good. Are you a hero, actually? Um, no. Not as such. Well, not at all, really. Even less than that. In fact, I just came to look for a friend of mine, he said wretchedly. I suppose you haven't seen him. Little fat man. Talks a lot. Wears eyeglasses. Funny sort of clothes. As he spoke, he was aware that he may have missed something vital. He shut his eyes and tried to recall the last few minutes of conversation. Then it hit him like a sandbag. Daddy? She looked down demurely. Adopted, actually, she said. He found me when I was a little girl, he says. It was all rather sad. She brightened. But come and meet him. He's got his friends in tonight. I'm sure he'll be interested to see you. He doesn't meet many people socially. "'Nor do I, actually,' she added. "'Sorry,' said Rincewind. "'Have I got it right? "'We're talking about, um, death, yes? "'Tall, thin, empty eye sockets, "'handy in the scythe department?' "'She sighed. "'Yes, his looks are against him, I'm afraid.' "'While it was true that, as has already been indicated, "'Rincewind was to magic what a bicycle is to a bumblebee,' he nevertheless retained one privilege available to practitioners of the art, which was that at the point of death, it would be death himself who turned up to claim him, instead of delegating the job to a lesser mythological anthropomorphic personification, as is usually the case. Owing largely to inefficiency, Rincewind had consistently failed to die at the right time, and if there is one thing that death does not like, it is unpunctuality. 
Look, I expect my friend has just wandered off somewhere, he said. He's always doing that. <laughs> Story of his life. Nice to have met you. Must be going. But she'd already stopped in front of a tall door padded with purple velvet. There were voices on the other side. Eldritch voices. The sort of voices that mere typography will remain totally unable to convey until someone can make a linotype machine with echo reverb and possibly a typeface that looks like something said by a slug. This is what the voices were saying. Would you mind explaining that again? Well, if you return anything except a trump, South will be able to get his two roughs, losing only one turtle, one elephant and one major arcana. Then... That's two flower, hissed Rincewind. I'd know that voice anywhere. Just a minute. Pestilence is South? Oh, come on, Mort. He explained that. What if Famine had played a, a, what was it, a Trump return? It was a breathy, wet voice, practically contagious all by itself. Ah, then you'd only be able to rough one turtle instead of two, said Two Flower, enthusiastically. But if war had chosen a Trump lead originally, then the contract would have gone two down. Exactly. I didn't quite follow that. Tell me about psychic bids again. I thought I was getting the hang of that. It was a heavy, hollow voice, like two large lumps of lead smashing together. That's when you make a bid primarily to deceive your opponents, but of course it might cause problems for your partner. Two Flowers' voice rambled on in its enthusiastic way. Rincewind looked blankly at Isabel as words like rebiddable suit double finesse and grand slam floated through the velvet. Do you understand any of that? she asked. Not a word, he said. It sounds awfully complicated. On the other side of the door, the heavy voice said, Did you say humans play this for fun? Some of them get to be very good at it, yes. I'm only an amateur, I'm afraid. But they only live eighty or ninety years. You should know, Mort, said a voice that Rincewind hadn't heard before and certainly never wanted to hear again, especially after dark. It's certainly very intriguing. Deal again, and let's see if I've got the hang of it. Do you think perhaps we should go in? said Usabel. A voice behind the door said, I bid the knave of terrapins. No, um, sorry, I'm sure you're wrong. Let's have a look at your hand. Usabel pushed the door open. It was, in fact, a rather pleasant study, perhaps a little on the sombre side, possibly created on a bad day by an interior designer who had a headache and a craving for putting large hourglasses on every flat surface, and also a lot of large, fat, yellow and extremely runny candles he wanted to get rid of. The death of the disc was a traditionalist who prided himself on his personal service and spent most of the time being depressed because this was not appreciated. He would point out that no one feared death itself, just pain and separation and oblivion, and that it was quite unreasonable to take against someone just because he had empty eye sockets and a quiet pride in his work. He still used a scythe, he'd point out, while the deaths of other worlds had long ago invested in combine harvesters. 
Death sat at one side of a black baize table in the centre of the room, arguing with famine, war and pestilence. Two-Flower was the only one to look up and notice Rincewind. "'Hey, how did you get here?' he said. "'Well, some say the creator took a handful of... "'Oh, I see. Um, well, it's hard to explain, but I... "'Have you got the luggage?' The wooden box pushed past Rincewind and settled down in front of its owner, who opened its lid and rummaged around inside until he came up with a small leather-bound book, which he handed to War, who was hammering the table with a mailed fist. "'It's nose-hinger on the laws of contract,' he said. "'It's quite good. There's a lot in it about double finessing and how to...' Death snatched the book with a bony hand and flipped through the pages, quite oblivious to the presence of the two men. "'Right!' Pestilence, open another pack of cards. I'm going to get to the bottom of this if it kills me. Figuratively speaking, of course. Rincewind grabbed Two-Flower and pulled him out of the room. As they jogged down the corridor with the luggage galloping behind them, he said, What was all that about? Well, they've got lots of time, and I thought they might enjoy it, panted Two-Flower. What, playing with cards? "'It's a special kind of playing,' said Two-Flower. "'It's called—' he hesitated. "'Language wasn't his strong point. "'In your language, it's called a thing you put across a river, for example,' he concluded. "'I think.' "'Aqueduct?' hazarded Rincewind. "'Fishing line? Weir? Dam?' "'Yes, possibly.' "'They reached the hallway where the big clock still shaved the seconds off the lives of the world.' "'And how long do you think that'll keep them occupied?' Two-Flower paused. "'I'm not sure,' he said thoughtfully. "'Probably until the last trump. "'What an amazing clock!' "'Don't try to buy it,' Rincewind advised. "'I don't think they'd appreciate it around here.' "'Where is here, exactly?' said Two-Flower, "'beckoning the luggage and opening its lid. "'Rincewind looked around. "'The hall was dark and deserted, "'its tall, narrow windows walled with ice. "'He looked down.' There was the faint blue line stretching away from his ankle. Now he could see that Two-Flower had one too. "'We're sort of informally dead,' he said. It was the best he could manage. "'Oh,' Two-Flower continued to rummage. "'Doesn't that worry you?' "'Well, things tend to work out in the end, don't you think? Anyway, I'm a firm believer in reincarnation. What would you like to come back as?' "'I don't want to go,' said Rincewind firmly. Come on, let's get out of... Oh, no, not that. Two-Flower had produced a box from the depths of the luggage. It was large and black and had a handle on one side and a little round window in front and a strap so that Two-Flower could put it round his neck, which he did. There was a time when Rincewind had quite liked the iconoscope. He believed, against all experience, that the world was fundamentally understandable and that if he could only equip himself with the right mental toolbox, he could take the back off and see how it worked. He was, of course, dead wrong. The iconoscope didn't take pictures by letting light fall onto specially treated paper, as he had surmised, but by the far simpler method of imprisoning a small demon with a good eye for colour and a speedy hand with a paintbrush. He had been very upset to find that out. "'You haven't got time to take pictures,' he hissed. "'It won't take long,' said Two-Flower firmly, and rapped on the side of the box. "'A tiny door flew open, and the imp poked his head out. "'Bloody hell,' it said. "'Where are we?' "'It doesn't matter,' said Two-Flower. "'The clock first, I think,' the demon squinted. "'Poor light,' he said. 
three bloody years at F8, if you ask me. He slammed the door shut. A second later, there was the tiny scraping noise of his stool being dragged up to his easel. Rincewind gritted his teeth. You don't need to take pictures, you can just remember it, he shouted. It's not the same, said Two Flower calmly. It's better, it's more real. It isn't really. In years to come, when I'm sitting by the fire... Uh, you'll be sitting by the fire forever if we don't get out of here. Oh, I do hope you're not going. They both turned. Usabel was standing in the archway, smiling faintly. She held a scythe in one hand. A scythe with a blade of proverbial sharpness. Rincewind tried not to look down at his blue lifeline. A girl holding a scythe shouldn't smile in that unpleasant, knowing and slightly deranged way. Daddy seems a little preoccupied at the moment, but I'm sure he wouldn't dream of letting you go off just like that, she added. Besides, I'd have no one to talk to. Who's this? said Two Flower. She sort of lives here, mumbled Rincewind. She's a sort of girl, he added. He grabbed Two Flower's shoulder and tried to shuffle imperceptibly towards the door into the dark, cold garden. It didn't work, largely because Twoflower wasn't the sort of person who went in for nuances of expression and somehow never assumed that anything bad might apply to him. "'Charmed, I'm sure,' he said. "'Very nice place you have here. Interesting baroque effect with the bones and skulls.' Isabel smiled. Rincewind thought, "'If death ever does hand over the family business, she'll be better at it than he is. She's bonkers.' "'Yes, but we must be going,' he said. "'I really won't hear of it,' she said. "'You must stay and tell me all about yourselves. "'There's plenty of time, and it's so boring here.' She darted sideways and swung the scythe at the shining threads. It screamed through the air like a neutered tomcat and stopped sharply. There was the creak of wood. The luggage had snapped its lid shut on the blade.' Twoflower looked up at Rincewind in astonishment, and the wizard, with great deliberation and a certain amount of satisfaction, hit him smartly on the chin. As the little man fell backwards, Rincewind caught him, threw him over a shoulder, and ran. Branches whipped at him in the starlit garden, and small, furry, and probably horrible things scampered away as he pounded desperately along the faint lifeline that shone eerily on the freezing grass. From the building behind him came a shrill scream of disappointment and rage. He cannoned off a tree and sped on. Somewhere there was a path, he remembered. But in this maze of silver light and shadows, tinted now with red, as the terrible new star made its presence felt even in the netherworld, nothing looked right. Anyway, the lifeline appeared to be going in quite the wrong direction. There was the sound of feet behind him. Rincewind wheezed with effort. It sounded like the luggage, and at the moment he didn't want to meet the luggage because it might have got the wrong idea about him hitting its master, and generally the luggage bit people it didn't like. Rincewind had never had the nerve to ask where it was they actually went when the heavy lid slammed shut on them, but they certainly weren't there when it opened again. In fact, he needn't have worried. The luggage overtook him easily, its little legs a blur of movement. It seemed to Rincewind to be concentrating very heavily on running, as if it had some inkling of what was coming up behind it and didn't like the idea at all. Don't look back, he remembered. The view probably isn't very nice. The luggage crashed through a bush and vanished. A moment later, Rincewind saw why. It had careened over the edge of the outcrop and was dropping towards the great hole underneath, which he could now see was faintly red-lit at the bottom.
Stretching from Rincewind out over the edge of the rocks and down into the hole were two shimmering blue lines. He paused uncertainly, although that isn't precisely true because he was totally certain of several things. For example, that he didn't want to jump, and that he certainly didn't want to face whatever it was coming up behind him, and that in the spirit world Two Flower was quite heavy, and that there were worse things than being dead. Name two, he muttered and jumped. A few seconds later the horsemen arrived and didn't stop when they reached the edge of the rock, but simply rode into the air and reined their horses over nothingness. Death looked down. That always annoys me. I might as well install a revolving door. I wonder what they wanted, said Pestilence. Search me, said War. Nice game, though. Right, agreed Famine. Compelling, I thought. We've got time for another fondle. Uh, rubber, corrected War. Rubber what? Uh, you call them rubbers, said War. Uh, right, rubbers. He looked up at the new star, puzzled as to what it might mean. I think we've got time he repeated, a trifle uncertainly. Mention has already been made of an attempt to inject a little honesty into reporting on the disc, and how poets and bards were banned on pain of, well, pain, from going on about babbling brooks and rosy-fingered dawn, and could only say, for example, that a face had launched a thousand ships if they were able to produce certified dockyard accounts. And therefore, out of a passing respect for this tradition, it will not be said of Rincewind and Two Flower that they became an ice-blue sine-wave arcing through the dark dimensions, or that there was a sound like the twanging of a monstrous tusk, or that their lives passed in front of their eyes. Rincewind had in any case seen his past life flash in front of his eyes so many times that he could sleep through the boring bits, or that the universe dropped on them like a large jelly. It will be said, because experiment has proved it to be true, that there was a noise like a wooden ruler being struck heavily with a C-sharp tuning fork, possibly B-flat, and a sudden sensation of absolute stillness. This was because they were absolutely still, and it was absolutely dark. It occurred to Rincewind that something had gone wrong. Then he saw the faint blue tracery in front of him. He was inside the octavo again. He wondered what would happen if anyone opened the book. Would he and Two Flower appear like a colour plate? Probably not, he decided. The octavo they were in was something a bit different from the mere book chained to its lectern deep in Unseen University, which was merely a three-dimensional representation of a multidimensional reality, and... Hold on, he thought. I don't like this. Who's thinking for me? Rinswind said a voice like the rustle of old pages. Who, me? Of course you, you daft sod. A flicker of defiance flared very briefly in Rincewind's battered heart. Have you managed to recall how the universe started yet? He said nastily. The clearing of the throat, wasn't it? Or the drawing of the breath? Or the scratching of the head and trying to remember it? It was on the tip of the tongue? Another voice, dry as tinder, hissed. You would do well 
to remember where you are. It should be impossible to hiss a sentence with no sibilance in it, but the voice made a very good attempt. Remember where I am? Remember where I am? shouted Rincewind. Of course I remember where I am. I'm inside a bloody book talking to a load of voices I can't see. Why do you think I'm screaming? I expect you're wondering why we brought you here again, said a voice by his ear. No. No? What did he say? said another disembodied voice. He said no. He really said no? Yes. Oh. Why? This sort of thing happens to me all the time, said Rincewind. One minute I'm falling off the world, then I'm inside a book, then I'm on a flying rock, then I'm watching death learn how to play weir or damn or whatever it was. And why should I wonder about anything? Well, we imagine you will be wondering why we don't want anyone to say us, said the first voice, aware that it was losing the initiative. Rincewind hesitated. The thought had crossed his mind, only very fast and looking nervously from side to side in case it got knocked over. Why should anyone want to say you? It's the star, said the spell. The red star. Wizards are already looking for you. When they find you, they want to say all eight spells together to change the future. They think the disc is going to collide with the star. Rincewind thought about this. Is it? Not exactly, but what's that? Rincewind looked down. The luggage padded out of the darkness. There was a long sliver of scythe blade in its lid. Oh, it's just the luggage, he said. But we didn't summon it here. No one summons it anywhere, said Rincewind. It just turns up. Don't worry about it. Oh, what were we talking about? This red star thing. Oh, right. It's very important that you... Hello? Hello? Anyone out there? It was a small and squeaky voice and came from the picture box, still slung around two flowers' inert neck. The picture imp opened his hatch and squinted up at Rincewind. Where's this, squire? it said. I'm not sure. We still dead? Maybe. Well, let's hope we go somewhere where we don't need too much black, because I've run out. The hatch slammed shut. Rincewind had a fleeting vision of Two Flower handing around his pictures and saying things like, This is me being tormented by a million demons, and this is me with that funny couple we met on the freezing slopes of the underworld. Rincewind wasn't certain about what happened to you after you really died. The authorities were a little unclear on the subject. A swarthy sailor from the Rimwood lands had said that he was confident of going to paradise where there was sherbet and hooris. Rincewind wasn't certain what a hooris was, but after some thought he came to the conclusion that it was a little licorice tube for sucking up the sherbet. Anyway, sherbet made him sneeze. Now that the interruption is over, said a dry voice firmly, Perhaps we can get on. 
It is most important that you don't let the wizards take the spell from you. Terrible things will happen if all eight spells are said too soon. I just want to be left in peace, said Rincewind. Good, good. We knew we could trust you from the day you first opened the Octavo. Rincewind hesitated. Hang on a minute, he said. You want me to run around keeping the wizards from getting all the spells together? Exactly. That's why one of you got into my head? Precisely. You totally ruined my life, you know that, said Rincewind hotly. I could have really made it as a wizard if you hadn't decided to use me as a sort of portable spell book. I can't remember any other spells. They're too frightened to stay in the same head as you. We're sorry. I just want to go home. I want to go back to where... A trace of moisture appeared in Rincewind's eye. To where there's cobbles under your feet, and some of the beer isn't too bad, and you can get quite a good piece of fried fish of an evening, with maybe a couple of big green gherkins, and even an eel pie and a dish of whelks, and there's always a warm stable somewhere to sleep in. And in the morning, you're always in the same place as you were the night before. And there wasn't all this weather all over the place. I mean, I don't mind about the magic. I'm probably not, you know, the right sort of material for a wizard. But I just want to go home. But you must. One of the spells began, but it was too late. Homesickness, the little elastic band in the subconscious that can wind up a salmon and propel it 3,000 miles through strange seas, or send a million lemmings running joyfully back to an ancestral homeland which, owing to a slight kink in the continental drift, isn't there anymore. Homesickness rose up inside Rincewind like a late-night prawn biryani, flowed along the tenuous thread linking his tortured soul to his body, dug its heels in and tugged. The spells were alone inside their octavo, alone at any rate apart from the luggage. They looked at it, not with eyes, but with consciousness as old as the Discworld itself. And you can bugger off too, they said. Bad. Rincewind knew it was himself speaking. He recognised the voice. For a moment he was looking out through his eyes, not in any normal way, but as a spy might peer through the cut-out eyes of a picture. Then he was back. "'You OK, Rinchwind? said Cohen. "'You looked a bit gone there.' "'You did look a bit white,' agreed Bethan, "'like someone had walked over your grave.' "'Um, yes, it was probably me,' he said. He held up his fingers and counted them. There appeared to be the normal amount. Um, have I moved at all, he said. You just looked at the fires as if you'd seen a ghost, said Bethan. There was a groan behind them. Two Flower was sitting up holding his head in his hands. His eyes focused on them. His lips moved soundlessly. That was a really strange dream, he said. What's this place? Why am I here? Well said Cohen. Some say the creator of the universe took a handful of clay and... No, I mean here, said Twoflower. Is that you, Rincewind? Yes, said Rincewind, giving it the benefit of the doubt. There was this... a clock that 
And, and, and these people who... said Two Flower. He shook his head. Why does everything smell of horses? You've been ill, said Rincewind, hallucinating. Yes, I, I suppose I was. Two Flower looked down at his chest. But in that case, why have I... Rincewind jumped to his feet. Sorry, very close in here. Got to have a breath of fresh air, he said. He removed the picture box's strap from Two Flower's neck and dashed for the tent flap. I didn't notice that when he came in, said Bethan. Cohen shrugged. Rincewind managed to get a few yards from the yurt before the ratchet of the picture box began to click. Very slowly, the box extruded the last picture that the imp had taken. Rincewind snatched it. What it showed would have been quite horrible even in broad daylight. By freezing starlight, tinted red with the fires of the evil new star, it was a lot worse. No, said Rincewind softly. No, it wasn't like that. There was a house and this girl and... You see what you see, and I paint what I see, said the imp from its hatch. What I see is real. I was bred for it. I only see what's really there. A dark shape crunched over the snow crust towards Rincewind. It was the luggage. Rincewind, who normally hated and distrusted it, suddenly felt it was the most refreshingly normal thing he had ever seen. I see you made it then, said Rincewind. The luggage rattled its lid. Okay, but what did you see? said Rincewind. Did you look behind? The luggage said nothing. For a moment they were silent, like two warriors who have fled the field of carnage and have paused for a return of breath and sanity. Then Rincewind said, Come on, there's a fire inside. He reached out to pat the luggage's lid. It snapped irritably at him, nearly catching his fingers. Life was back to normal again. The next day dawned bright and clear and cold. The sky became a blue dome stuck on the white sheet of the world, and the whole effect would have been as fresh and clean as a toothpaste advert if it wasn't for the pink dot on the horizon. "'You can see it in daylight now,' said Cohen. "'What is it?' He looked hard at Rincewind, who reddened. "'Why does everybody look at me?' he said. "'I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a comet or something.' "'Will we all be burned up?' said Bethan. How should I know? I've never been hit by a comet before. They were riding in single file across the brilliant snowfield. The horse people, who seemed to hold Cohen in high regard, had given them their mounts and directions to the river Smarl, a hundred miles rimward, where Cohen reckoned Rincewind and Twoflower could find a boat to take them to the Circle Sea. He had announced that he was coming with them on account of his chillblains. Bethan had promptly announced that she was going to come too, in case Cohen wanted anything rubbed. Rincewind was vaguely aware of some sort of chemistry bubbling away. For one thing, Cohen had made an effort to comb his beard. I think she's rather taken with you, he said. Cohen sighed. If I was twenty years younger, he said wistfully, yes, I'd be sixty-seven. What's that got to do with it? Well... How can I put it? When I was a young man, carving my name in the world, well, then I liked my women red-haired and fiery. Ah. Oh. And then I grew a little older, and for preference I looked for a woman with blonde hair and the glint of the world in her eye. Oh, yes. But then I grew a little older again, and I came to see the point of dark women of a sultry nature. He paused. Rincewind waited. And, he said, then what? 
What is it that you look for in a woman now? Cohen turned one roomy blue eye on him. Patience, he said. I can't believe it, said a voice behind them. Me riding with Cohen the Barbarian. It was Two Flower. Since early morning, he had been like a monkey with a key to the banana plantation after discovering he was breathing the same air as the greatest hero of all time. Is he perhaps being sarcastic? said Cohen to Rincewind. No, he's always like that. Cohen turned in his saddle. Two Flower beamed at him and waved proudly. Cohen turned back and grunted. He's got eyes, isn't he? Yes, but they don't work like other people's. Take it from me. I mean, well, you know the horse people's yurt where we were last night? Yes. Would you say it was a bit dark and greasy and smelt like a very ill horse? Very accurate description, I'd say. He wouldn't agree. He'd say it was a magnificent barbarian tent, hung with the pelts of the great beasts, hunted by the lean-eyed warriors from the edge of civilization, and smelt of the rare and curious resins, plundered from the caravans as they crossed the trackless... Uh, well, and so on. I mean it, he added. He's mad? Sort of mad, but mad with lots of money. Oh, then he can't be mad. I've been around. If a man has lots of money... He's just eccentric. Cohen turned in his saddle again. Two Flower was telling Bethan how Cohen had single-handedly defeated the snake warriors of the witch lord of Sibelinda and stolen the sacred diamond from the giant statue of Offler, the crocodile god. A weird smile formed among the wrinkles of Cohen's face. I could tell him to shut up if you like, said Rincewind. Would he? Nah, not really. Let him babble said Cohen. His hand fell to the handle of his sword, polished smooth by the grip of decades. Anyway, I like his eyes, he said. They can see for fifty years. A hundred yards behind them, hopping rather awkwardly through the soft snow, came the luggage. No one ever asked its opinion about anything. By evening, they had come to the edge of the high plains, and rode down through gloomy pine forests that had only been lightly dusted by the snowstorm. It was a landscape of huge cracked rocks, and valleys so narrow and deep that the days only lasted about twenty minutes. A wild, windy country, the sort where you might expect to find... Trolls, said Cohen, sniffing the air. Rincewind stared around him in the red evening light. Suddenly, rocks that had seemed perfectly normal looked suspiciously alive. Shadows that he wouldn't have looked at twice now began to look horribly occupied. I like trolls, said Two Flower. No, you don't, said Rincewind firmly. You can't. They're big and knobbly and they eat people. No, they don't, said Cohen, sliding awkwardly off his horse and massaging his knees. Well-known misapprehension, that is. Trolls never ate anybody. No? No! They always spit the bits out. Can't digest people, you see. Your average troll don't want any more out of life than a nice lump of granite. Maybe with perhaps a nice slab of limestone for afters. I heard someone say it's because they're a shillikash... A shillikash... A sh Cohen paused and wiped his beard. Made out of rocks. Rincewind nodded. 
Trolls were not unknown in Ankh-Morpork, of course, where they often got employment as bodyguards. They tended to be a bit expensive to keep, until they learned about doors and didn't simply leave the house by walking aimlessly through the nearest wall. As they gathered firewood, Cohen went on. Trolls' teeth. That's the things. Why? said Bethan. Diamonds. Got to be, you see. Only thing that can stand the rocks, and they still have to grow a new set every year. Talking of teeth, said Twoflower. Yes? I can't help noticing. Yes? Oh, nothing, said Twoflower. Yes? Oh, let's get this fire going before we lose the light. And then... Cohen's face fell. I suppose we'd better make some soup. Rincewind's good at that, said Two Flower enthusiastically. He knows all about herbs and roots and things. Cohen gave Rincewind a look which suggested that he, Cohen, didn't believe that. Well, the horse people gave us some horse jerky, he said. If you can find some wild onions and stuff, it might make it taste better. But I... Uh, Rincewind began and gave up. Anyway, he reasoned, I know what an onion looks like. It's a sort of saggy white thing with a green bit sticking out of the top. Should be fairly conspicuous. I'll just go and have a look, shall I? He said. Yes. Over there in all that thick, shadowy undergrowth. Very good place, yes. Where all the deep gullies and things are, you mean? Ideal spot, I'd say. Yes, I thought so, said Rincewind bitterly. He set off wondering how you attracted onions. After all, he thought, although you see them hanging in ropes on market stalls, they probably don't grow like that. Perhaps peasants or whatever use onion hounds or something, or sing songs to attract onions. There were a few early stars out as he started to poke aimlessly among the leaves and grass. Luminous fungi, unpleasantly organic, and looking like marital aids for gnomes, squished under his feet. Small flying things bit him. Other things, fortunately invisible, hopped or slithered away under the bushes and croaked reproachfully at him. "'Onions?' whispered Rincewind. "'Any onions here?' "'There's a patch of them by that old yew tree.' said a voice beside him. Ah, said Rincewind, good. There was a long silence except for the buzzing of mosquitoes around Rincewind's ears. He was standing perfectly still. He hadn't even moved his eyes. Eventually he said, Excuse me. Yes? Which one's the you? Small, gnarly one with the little dark green needles. Oh, yes, I see. Thanks again. He didn't move. Eventually the voice said, conversationally, "'Anything more I can do for you?' "'You're not a tree, are you?' said Rincewind, still staring straight ahead. "'Don't be silly. Trees can't talk.' "'Sorry. It's just that I've been having a bit of difficulty with trees lately. You know how it is.' "'Not really. I'm a rock.' Rincewind's voice hardly changed. "'Fine, fine,' he said slowly. Well, I'll just be getting those onions, then. Enjoy them. He walked forward in a careful and dignified fashion, spotted a clump of stringy white things huddling in the undergrowth, uprooted them carefully, and turned round. There was a rock a little way away. But there were rocks everywhere. The very bones of the disc were near the surface here. He looked hard at the yew tree. 
just in case it had been speaking. But the yew, being a fairly solitary tree, hadn't heard about Rincewind the arboreal saviour, and in any case was asleep. If that was you, Two-Flower, I knew it was you all along, said Rincewind. His voice sounded suddenly clear and very alone in the gathering dusk. Rincewind remembered the only fact he knew for sure about trolls, which was that they turned into stone when exposed to sunlight, so that anyone who employed trolls to work during daylight had to spend a fortune in barrier cream. But now that he came to think about it, it didn't say anywhere what happened to them after the sun had gone down again. The last of the daylight trickled out of the landscape, and there suddenly seemed to be a great many rocks about. He's an awful long time with those onions, said Two Flower. Do you think we'd better go and look for him? Wizards know how to look after themselves, said Cohen. Don't worry. He winced. Bethan was cutting his toenails. He's not a terribly good wizard, actually, said Two Flower, drawing nearer the fire. I wouldn't say this to his face, but he leaned towards Cohen. I've never actually seen him do any magic. Right, let's have the other one, said Bethan. She's very kind of you. You'd have quite nice feet if only you'd look after them. I can't seem to bend down like I used to, said Cohen sheepishly. Of course, you don't get to meet many chiropodists in my line of work. Funny, really. I've met any amount of snake priests, mad gods, warlords, never any chiropodists. I suppose it wouldn't look too right, really. Cohen against the chiropodists. Or Cohen and the chiropractors of doom, suggested Bethan. Cohen cackled. Or Cohen and the mad dentists, laughed Two Flower. Cohen's mouth snapped shut. What's so funny about that? he asked, and his voice had knuckles in it. Oh, er, uh, well, said Two Flower, your teeth, you see. What about them? snapped Cohen. Two Flower swallowed. I can't help noticing that they're, um, not in the same geographical location as your mouth. Cohen glared at him. Then he sagged and looked very small and old. True, of course, he muttered. I don't blame you. It's hard to be a hero with no teeth. It don't matter what else you lose. You can get by with one eye, even. But you show him a mouth full of gums, and no one has any respect. I do, said Bethan loyally. Why don't you get some more, said Two Flower brightly. Yes, well, if I was a shark or something, yes, I'd grow some, said Cohen sarcastically. Oh, no, you buy them, said Two Flower. Look, I'll show you. Um, Bethan, do you mind looking the other way? He waited until she'd turned around, and then he put his hand to his mouth. You see, he said. Bethan heard Cohen gasp. You can take yours out? Oh, yes, I've got several sets. Excuse me. There was a swallowing noise, and then, in a more normal voice, Two Flower said, It's very convenient, of course. Cohen's very voice radiated awe, or as much awe as is possible without teeth, which is about the same amount as with teeth, but sounds a great deal less impressive. I should think so, he said. When they ache, you just take them out and let them get on with it, yes? Teach the little buggers a lesson. See how they like being left to ache all by themselves. 
That's not quite right, said Two Flower carefully. They're not mine. They just belong to me. You put someone else's teeth in your mouth? No, someone made them. Lots of people wear them where I come from. It's, um... But Two Flower's lecture on dental appliances went ungiven because somebody hit him. The disc's little moon toiled across the sky. It shone by its own light, owing to the cramped and rather inefficient astronomical arrangements made by the Creator, and was quite crowded with assorted lunar goddesses, who were not at this particular time paying much attention to what went on in the disc, but were getting up a petition about the ice giants. Had they looked down, they would have seen Rincewind talking urgently to a bunch of rocks. Trolls are one of the oldest life-forms in the multiverse, dating from an early attempt to get the whole life-thing on the road without all that squashy protoplasm. Individual trolls live for a long time, hibernating during the summertime and sleeping during the day, since heat affects them and makes them slow. They have a fascinating geology. One could talk about tribology, one could mention the semiconductor effects of impure silicon, one could talk about the giant trolls of prehistory who made up most of the disc's major mountain ranges and will cause some real problems if they ever awake. But the plain fact is that without the disc's powerful and pervasive magical field, trolls would have died out a long time ago. Psychiatry hadn't been invented on the disc. No one had ever shoved an ink blot under Rincewind's nose to see if he had any loose toys in the attic. So the only way he'd have been able to describe the rocks turning back into trolls was by gabbling vaguely about how pictures suddenly form when you look at the fire, or clouds. One minute there'd be a perfectly ordinary rock, and suddenly a few cracks that had been there all along took on the definite appearance of a mouth or a pointed ear. A moment later, and without anything actually changing at all, a troll would be sitting there, grinning at him with a mouthful of diamonds. They wouldn't be able to digest me, he told himself. I'd make them awfully ill. It wasn't much of a comfort. So, you're Rincewind the Wizard, said the nearest one. It sounded like someone running over gravel. I don't know. I thought you'd be taller. Perhaps he's eroded a bit, said another one. The legend is awfully old. Rincewind shifted awkwardly. He was pretty certain the rock he was sitting on was changing shape, and a tiny troll, hardly any more than a pebble, was sitting companionably on his foot and watching him with extreme interest. A legend, he said. What legend? It's been handed down from mountain to gravel since the sunset of time, said the first troll. An interesting metaphor. To nocturnal trolls, of course, the dawn of time lies in the future. When the red star lights the sky, Rincewind the wizard will come looking for onions. Do not bite him. It is very important that you help him stay alive. There was a pause. That's it, said Rincewind. Yes, said the troll. We've always been puzzled about it. Most of our legends are much more exciting. It was more interesting being a rock in the old days. It was said Rincewind weakly. Oh, yes, no end of fun. Volcanoes all over the place. It really meant something being a rock then. There was none of the sedimentary nonsense. You were igneous or nothing. Of course, that's all gone now. 
People call themselves trolls today. Well, sometimes they're hardly more than slate. Chalk, even. I wouldn't give myself airs if you could use me to draw with, would you? No, said Rincewind quickly. Absolutely not, no. This uh, legend thing, it said you shouldn't bite me. That's right, said the little troll on his foot. And it was me who told you where the onions were. We're rather glad you came along, said the first troll, which Rincewind couldn't help noticing was the biggest one there. We're a bit worried about this new star. What does it mean? I don't know, said Rincewind. Everyone seems to think I know about it, but I don't. It's not that we would mind being melted down, said the big troll. That's how we all started, anyway. But we thought maybe it might mean the end of everything, and that doesn't seem a very good thing. It's getting bigger, said another troll. Look at it now. It's bigger than last night. Rincewind looked. It was definitely bigger than last night. So we thought you might have some suggestions, said the head troll, as meekly as it is possible to sound with a voice like a granite gargle. Um, you could jump over the edge, said Rincewind. There must be lots of places in the universe that could do with some extra rocks. We've heard about that, said the troll. We've met rocks that tried it. They say you float about for millions of years, and then you get very hot and burn away and end up at the bottom of a big hole in the scenery. That doesn't sound very bright. It stood up with a noise like coal rattling down a chute, and stretched its thick, knobbly arms. Well, we're supposed to help you, it said. Anything you want doing? Um, I was supposed to be making some soup, said Rincewind. He waved the onions vaguely. It was probably not the most heroic or purposeful gesture ever made. Soup? said the troll. Is that all? Well, maybe some biscuits too. The trolls looked at one another, exposing enough mouth jewellery to buy a medium-sized city. Eventually the biggest troll said, Soup it is, then? It shrugged grittily. It's just that we imagined that the legend would, well, be a little more... I don't know, somehow I thought, still, I expect it doesn't matter. It extended its hand like a bunch of fossil bananas. I'm quartz, it said. That's Kaisoprace over there, and Brekia, and Jasper, and my wife Beryl. She's a bit metamorphic, but who isn't these days? <laughs> Jasper, get off his foot. Rincewind took the hand gingerly, bracing himself for the crunch of crushed bone. It didn't come. The troll's hand was rough and a bit lichenous around the fingernails. I'm sorry, said Rincewind. I never really met trolls before. We're a dying race, said Quartz sadly, as the party set off under the stars. Young Jasper's the only pebble in our tribe. We suffer from philosophy, you know. Yes, said Rincewind, trying to keep up. The troll band moved very quickly, but also very quietly. Big, round shapes moving like wraiths through the night. Only the occasional flat squeak of a night creature who hadn't heard them approaching marked their passage. Oh, yes. Martyrs to it. It comes to all of us in the end. One evening, they say, you start to wake up, and then you think, why bother? And you just don't. See those boulders over there? Rincewind saw some huge shapes lying in the grass. The one on the end's my aunt. I don't know what she's thinking about, but she hasn't moved for two hundred years. Gosh, I'm sorry. 
Oh, it's no problem with us around to look after them, said Quartz. Not many humans around here, you see. I know it's not your fault, but you don't seem to be able to spot the difference between a thinking troll and an ordinary rock. My great-uncle was actually quarried, you know. Oh, that's terrible. Yes, one minute he was a troll, and the next he was an ornamental fireplace. They paused in front of a familiar-looking cliff. The scuffed remains of a fire smouldered in the darkness. It looks like there's been a fight, said Beryl. They're all gone, said Rincewind. He ran to the end of the clearing. The horses, too. Even the luggage. One of them's leaked, said Quartz, kneeling down. The red watery stuff you have in your insides, look. Blood. Is that what it's called? I've never really seen the point of it. Rincewind scuttled about in the manner of one totally at his wit's end, peering behind bushes in case anyone was hiding there. That was why he tripped over a small green bottle. Cohen's liniment, he moaned. He never goes anywhere without it. Well, said Quartz, you humans have something you can do. I mean, like when we slow right down and catch philosophy, only you just fall to bits. Dying, it's cold, screamed Rincewind. That's it. They haven't done that because they're not here. Unless they were eaten, suggested Jasper excitedly. Hmm, said Quartz, and... Wolves, said Rincewind. Yeah, we flattened all the wolves around here years ago, said the troll. Old Grandad did anyway. He didn't like them? No, he just didn't used to look where he was going. Hmm. The trolls looked at the ground again. There's a trail, he said. Quite a lot of horses. He looked up at the nearby hills where sheer cliffs and dangerous crags loomed over the moonlit forests. Old Grandad lives up there, he said quietly. There was something about the way he said it that made Rincewind decide that he didn't ever want to meet old Grandad. Dangerous, is he? he ventured. He's very old and big and mean. We haven't seen him about for years, said Quartz. Centuries, corrected Beryl. He'll squash them all flat, added Jasper, jumping up and down on Rincewind's toes. It just happens sometimes that a really old and big troll will go off by himself into the hills and... Um, the rock takes over, if you follow me. No, Quartz sighed. People sometimes act like animals, don't they? And sometimes a troll will start thinking like a rock. And rocks don't like people much. Breccia, a skinny troll with a sandstone finish, rapped on Quartz's shoulder. Are we going to follow them then, he said. The legend says we should help this rinse-wind squashy. Quartz stood up, thought for a moment, then picked Rincewind up by the scruff of his neck and with a big gritty movement placed him on his shoulders. We go, he said firmly. If we meet old Grandad, I'll try and explain. Two miles away, a string of horses trotted through the night. Three of them carried captives, expertly gagged and bound. A fourth pulled a rough travois, on which the luggage lay trussed and netted and silent. Herena softly called the column to a halt and beckoned one of her men to her. Are you quite sure? she said. I can't hear anything. I saw troll shapes, he said flatly. She looked around. The trees had thinned out here. There was a lot of scree, 
and ahead of them the track led towards a bald, rocky hill that looked especially unpleasant by red starlight. She was worried about the track. It was extremely old, but something had made it, and trolls took a lot of killing. She sighed. Suddenly it looked as though that secretarial career was not such a bad option at that. Not for the first time, she reflected that there were many drawbacks to being a swordswoman, not least of which was that men didn't take you seriously until you'd actually killed them, by which time it didn't really matter anyway. Then there was all the leather, which brought her out in a rash, but seemed to be unbreakably traditional. And then there was the ale. It was all right for the likes of Hrun the Barbarian, or Simba the Assassin, to carouse all night in low bars, but Herenna drew the line at it, unless they sold proper drinks in small glasses, preferably with a cherry in. And as for the toilet facilities. But she was too big to be a thief, too honest to be an assassin, too intelligent to be a wife, and too proud to enter the only other female profession generally available. So she'd become a swordswoman and had been a good one, amassing a modest fortune that she was carefully husbanding for a future that she hadn't quite worked out yet, but which would certainly include a B-day, if she had anything to say about it. There was a distant sound of splintering timber. Trolls had never seen the point of walking around trees. She looked up at the hill again. Two arms of high ground swept away to right and left, and up ahead was a large outcrop with, she squinted, some caves in it? Troll caves. But maybe a better option than blundering around at night, and come sun up, there'd be no problem. She leaned across to Guncia, leader of the gang of Moorpork mercenaries. She wasn't very happy about him. It was true that he had the muscles of an ox, and the stamina of an ox. The trouble was that he seemed to have the brain of an ox as well, and the viciousness of a ferret. Like most of the lads in downtown Moorpork, he'd have cheerfully sold his granny for glue, and probably had. We'll head for the caves and light a big fire in the entrance, she said. Trolls don't like fire. He gave her a look which suggested he had his own ideas about who should be giving the orders. But his lips said, You're the boss. Right. Herena looked back at the three captives. That was the box, all right. Trumon's description had been absolutely accurate. But neither of the men looked like a wizard. Not even a failed wizard. End of CD4